This morning, you'll see in your bulletin that the title of the sermon is Faith Working Through Love 3, and that's true but not true. Um, Because we have adopted this as the motto of our church, uh, it seemed fitting to spend a bit of time giving the parameters for what it means for our church, but to say that every sermon will be Roman numeral 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 is really misleading. This morning, um, the title of our sermon is Those Who Are Led by the Spirit of God or Sons of God, or uh, The Spirit Helps Us in Our Weakness. That actually is probably a better title, and it comes from the book of Romans, the eighth chapter. Now, why would we do this in faith working through love? Well, one of the issues that, um, one of the issues that you will notice in our life as a church is that we tend to be a little bit uh, more sober-minded than, let's say, what you normally see on uh, Christian television, like on Trinity Broadcasting Network. Um, there tends to be more of an awareness of sin and more of an acknowledgement of the utility of suffering and of challenges in our life as Christians. Now, uh, I, last night I did something that is very depressing um, I'm not sure why. Maybe some of you can analyze me and tell me afterwards. But uh, <clears throat> my father left boxes of correspondence. And I've never looked at them. And uh, when Nathan, my brother, died, his, his widow brought them up to our house and left them there. And they've been sitting down in the crawl space. And I don't know why, but I find it very depressing to look at letters written many years ago by my dad. <laughs> you know, it's just sort of gets to me, but I opened up one of them and I found an article that he had written and I'd never thought about this, but in, he attached the article to a letter that he sent to the, the top man in his company at the time saying, this is a very controversial article that I have sent in to be published by the magazine and uh, <clears throat> I just thought you should have a copy of it. Well, you know what's going on there. If the company has a public presence and he's saying to his boss, here's an article I've written that's controversial, he's, you know, he's saying, you know, I hope you won't mind that I'm doing this, but I've done it, but here it is, so if you want to yell at me, yell at me. Now, I I thought a lot about it, and I'm convinced that he would not have taken the article back if that man had said that he should not have published it. I think Dad would have gone ahead. Uh, there were too many controversial articles that my dad wrote to have for me to think that he was always having to think about whether or not he'd pull them back. Anyhow, this particular article was written in 19, I want to say, 83, 82. And uh, it, was, it was an article about uh, television preaching. And the substance of the article was that, um, that television preaching was presenting to people a God who was very deceiving. In other words, the way that God is presented on television preaching is, is itself a form of communicating about the character of God. Like he talked about the fact that one man that was leading prayer on television was sitting with his legs crossed in a way that a man normally wouldn't even cross his legs in the room of his boss, let alone the mighty God. So he sort of slouched back in a, in a couch with his legs crossed, uh, 
sort of, you know, nonchalantly approaching the throne of God. Well, we believe that it, it, it has importance what our posture is. This is why recently we started kneeling. It's not because we want to show each other that we're holy. It's because we want to conform our minds to our bodies sometimes. It's not always your body to your mind, but sometimes it should be your mind to your body, right? So when we kneel, it humbles our minds, it humbles our hearts, and we remember that God is high and lifted up and that he is holy. Remember a number of years ago when um, I was over in Riga, Latvia, and it had just been opened up from communism, and I went into the cathedral to, to, to worship. And in the cathedral, the only people that were there were very, very old widows because they had been the only ones that had lived through communism and had, had, had maintained the purity of their hearts towards the Lord. And the thing I loved about it is this huge old building, and much of it was decayed. It had been some state function during communism, and now it had been returned to the use for which it had been built, worshiping God. Um, but the thing that was amazing to me was no sound system, number one, huge building, no sound system, barely anybody there, uh, cold stone floors. But every time they prayed, all of those old women got down on their knees on the stone floor. And that made quite an impression on me uh, to see those faithful women all those years suffering the, 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 the fear of uh, being exiled, being punished, being persecuted. And now communism dead and them still there back in the place of worship, kneeling in that cold building on the stone floor. Now, if you think about what it says about us when our major public preachers are on television, in our living rooms, praying nonchalantly, but more than that, praying in such a way that uh, every day in every way the world is getting better and better. That's, that's the term I always use for the, for the main vision that television gives us, that, that the Christian life is from joy to joy. And that if you're not going from joy to joy in the Christian life, you don't get it. Uh, there's something wrong with you, and almost always what's wrong with you is you don't have faith. Because if you have faith, you'll get your dead back. You know, I've a couple of times been in the hospital here when people who have been seduced by this false Christianity have been in there claiming the resurrection of their loved ones who have just died. All right. And I don't know how many hours it took them to submit to the plan of God for their loved one. I don't know if when they left, they felt that their faith had been insufficient to give them back their loved one. But this is wrong. This is not right. And this is the view of Christianity that's given. So if you go up as a Christian, my father, and it was very interesting, my, my dad in this article uh, was really quite soft about this, quite soft. He could be hard. And I thought it was so interesting that he felt the need to write uh, his top dog at this company and say, you know, this is a controversial article. I thought, what is controversial about it? And then I thought, look at what has happened since then. I mean, whatever was small and incipient at that point, now it's just humongous. And it, it's all over the world. It's in Eastern Europe. It's all over Africa. Everywhere you go in Africa, this is, this is what you get. 
And uh, my father had no idea how this was going to take over the world. The interesting thing was at that time, Jim Baker had not been exposed, Jim and Tammy Faye. And so it was back at a time when Jim and Tammy Faye were the main proponents of this, 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 this false religion. Now, I'm not saying everybody on television is false. Please allow me to make generalizations as you make them every day. You know, I generally don't like apple pie, but this apple pie I like. You know, nobody's offended. You know, they allow you to like this one and generally to dislike apple pie. All right. Most television preachers are absolutely not Christianity. All right. There are some who are. All right. So <laughs> I'm not a professor at IU, so you can let me make generalizations. Now, why am I bringing this up? Well, it is incredibly difficult, and this is something my father foresaw and predicted. It is incredibly difficult to hold to a biblical view of the Christian life, all right, in a culture where everybody is being taught who God is by their televisions in the intimacy of their living room, and that teaching is false. Because what you get is you get like 45 minutes a week on Sunday morning to try to be an antidote to what many of you have gotten for hours the rest of the week. Now, even if you're not the ones that are watching Trinity Broadcasting Network, it's what you get on the radio when you listen to, to other churches. It's, it's just, it is absolutely inundated our culture. And so even if you don't watch it, you're still the product of that culture of television preachers. All right? It's largely the culture, if you ask Joseph, who goes around... Uh, taping conferences. If you ask John Crum, they go around and tape all the main Christian conferences. It's largely the culture of all the Christian conferences. It's the, it's the tapes that everybody's ordering. It's the campus ministries that are here on campus. It is every day and every way the world is getting better and better for those who are in Christ. If you have faith, you will live a victorious Christian life. If you're not living a victorious Christian life, there's this formula, this secret potion, this uh, little uh, mantra that you have to repeat, and then you will yourself every day in every way get better and better. Now, this is true. The Bible does tell us that we will be sanctified as Christians. But if people have come to Christ hearing that Christ will give them friends, will heal their marriage, will cause them never to be sick, and will one day give them heaven, they have a completely wrong view of Christianity as Jesus taught it and as the apostles lived it. And so, as a church, what we have to do is try to be an antidote to this. We have to try to make it clear to you that God is holy. That his principal concern with us is not that we get up out of our wheelchair and walk. Or that we get rich. Or that we put our debt behind us. That what God is concerned with principally is that we reflect his character. And that it's about him and not about us. And the very fact that he is aware of us is a miracle. The fact that He would give His Son to die for us is a miracle. And so if you think about the ministry of a church like this where you're constantly beating your head against the wall, you know, um, and the wall is this monolithic, impervious, absolutely hard rebellion against the God of Scripture and selling American consumerists no suffering, everything convenient, as if it's Christianity. All right? You're hitting your head against this 
what ends up happening is, as a congregation, as families and as individuals, we become uh, crusty and negative. Now, I, I hope that makes sense to you, that if you're fighting against a sort of uh, what I think of as um, sugar candy culture, you know, where you, you stick your head in and it goes too far, and instead of just having a little bit on your tongue, you got all that, like, cloying sweetness all over your face, and you're like, your hands get sticky, everything you touch gets sticky. And so what do you do? You go in the bathroom and, like, you take the water, throw it on your face, lots of soap, and then everything's soapy. Well, the goal of life is not to either be sugar candy or soapy, right? The goal of life is to have a face that isn't either soapy or sugar candy. Right? Well, we as a church are kind of soapy. <laughs> well, you have a better analogy. I use the ones that come to my mind. Okay, my, my children are laughing at me. Now, how do you go about finding the sober medium? Now, you know that what I should have said is a happy medium. But I want to avoid either saying happy or sad. How do, you, how do you go for the sober-minded medium here? Well, one of the ways is by recognizing the false teaching of those who say in every day, in every way, the world is getting better and better. And if your world isn't getting better and better, you're not going from happiness to bliss, you lack faith. You have to recognize that as false doctrine. The only way you'll recognize that is by sitting in a church and sitting in a room reading the Bible, not listening to all these people. Put them out of your lives. Don't ever turn Trinity Broadcasting Network on. Ever. All right. And if you're listening to preachers that make you think there's something wrong with you, that you're not as happy as they are, turn them off. Okay. They are detrimental to your soul. All right. Number two. If you're around people who are always sarcastic and cynical and never see hope, turn them off. Don't have them as friends. Don't go to their home and don't read them because that's evil. There should be the joy of the Lord in your life. Now, it's not this false joy and it's not this false sour pussy. <laughs> it is the joy of the Lord. Um... Now, how do you get the joy of the Lord? Well, turn with me to Romans 8. And we're going to read starting with verse 20. It's hard to, to cut any of this out. Let's start with verse 18. Okay? Verse 18, we'll read through to verse 27. This is the word of the Lord, and it is eternally true. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. 
For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Now, before I continue reading, let me just point out what we've read. What is this saying to us? Well, number one, notice in verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You cannot read that without understanding that this present life is sufferings. It is sufferings. You know, probably one of the best indications of the suffering of life is fall where everything dies. And if you want to put a negative point on fall, probably the best place to focus is the rotting leaves in your gutters. No one in the world enjoys cleaning out gutters. And the reason is not because you could fall. That's part of it. But it's because they stink to high heaven. You send your son up to do that. (laughs) And if he throws the leaves into the grass, you don't let them sit there. You don't want to walk around the grass having all these stinking piles. Now, that is nature. Every fall, we go through this cycle. Now, do you think that God is teaching us anything through this cycle? Do you think that there's a purpose behind rotting leaves? I think there is. I think God is teaching us that this is the nature of life in this veil of tears. You drive down the road, and some people really hate these crosses by the road, but I love them. I love them because I love to see the love of the family members that want to recognize the place their loved one died. But I also love it because I am happy for any reminder that we have that we live in this life in the midst of death. And that is what this life is. If you've ever been present when your wife has given birth to a child, you know the truth of the statement of, I think it was Lucretius who said that the wail of the dead is mingled with the cry of the newborn. Death and birth are like cheek by jowl, almost identical. It's only recently that we haven't lost a tremendous number of our mothers and our children at the time of birth. And so this life is difficult. And we're reminded spring, summer, fall, and winter. When I was younger, fall was my favorite season. As I approach death, it's no longer my favorite. Why? Well, it's a little too close for comfort. You know? I think probably a lot of people here that are my age would agree with this. You can look at it romantically when you're young, because it's a long way off. (laughs) Seems to have a a certain beauty. Then you hit winter, and winter everything's dead and cold. Do you ever think about what hell will be like? I'm reminded what hell will be like when I walk into my house and it's desperately cold out. And then I think of the difference between desperate cold and desperate heat. Because so much of Scripture speaks of hell as being a fire that never goes out. And so temperature always calls to my mind hell. And God has us surrounded by nature to teach us about the nature of spiritual things. All right. When we see the flesh that's on our plate that we're going to eat, we should think of the fact that an animal that God made died to let us eat. Some find it offensive. We should find that God is a gracious provider. But an animal died, you know, make no mistake about it. It's dead animal that you're eating. You know, and previous generations 
would never laugh at that. Never ever laugh at that because they would have. Annie Lane won't eat chicken. Chicken. We sometimes sneak it on her. We tell her it's like cod or pork or something. But she can't stand to eat chicken. So recently we had chicken, and she told us the story why she can't eat. She hates chicken because every Saturday her dad would get home from work and he would take a chicken down in the basement. All the neighbor kids would come over, and he'd kill this chicken, and then he'd prepare it. And it was a horrendous experience for her to actually see. Now, had she been around when a, when a cow was butchered, she might hate beef. And if she saw what happens to a fish, she might hate fish. But make no mistake about it. When you eat meat, you're eating a dead animal. And that God has said that he gives us these animals for our food. All right? And it's death. And so when we read this and we see, I consider that the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared with the glory, what should happen is we should automatically say, yes, this world is suffering. Is this what Trinity Broadcasting Network says to you? It is not what it says. You have to see that this whole cloying cotton candy version of Christianity is absolutely contrary to Scripture. All right. We consider that the sufferings of this present time, name it and claim it. No, no, no. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared. So, yes, we acknowledge the sufferings and we say yes, but. And what's the but? The but is that it's not worthy to be compared to the glory that's going to be revealed when we get to heaven. And so we're aware that we live in a pressure cooker. You know, that the heat's going up, the temperature's going up, the pressure's going up. And that that is right, that God said it would be. Jesus said, no servant is greater than master. If they hated me, they'll hate you too. I mean, how many times do you have to have Jesus and the apostles say this to you before you put out of your mind the fact that you must be doing something wrong if the pressure's building? All right? No, no, no. The sufferings of this present age aren't worthy to be compared to the glory. Now, what is the basis of the word glory? It's, it's weight. Uh, I always think C.S. Lewis is uh, titled The Weight of Glory. Okay? So... The suffering isn't worthy to be compared to the glory, to the weight, to the, to the beauty of what is going to be revealed. Now, how can you have something going to be revealed if it's already present? And this is what the text says. The text says, you know, hope you already have is no hope. What's the sense of having hope if it's present? I hope again you see how contrary to the spirit of the American church and the American television this is. All right? We do not have in the present what we have been promised. There should be a longing that we find in us for something that we know will be coming but we don't yet have. Do you have that longing? Do you have a sense that God has made you for something different than what you are? <laughs> Now, why am I laughing? Well, think of how you think of yourself. You know, when you're naked in front of a mirror. I mean, is this really what you think God intended to make? You know, you are pretty ugly. You're probably fat in some places. There are some places where there are stretch marks. You might have a hernia. And I could go on and on and describe what you look like. Now, let's take your personality. It is not beautiful. And your wife knows it. And your children know it. Right? You really aren't nice. 
And probably the very time when you claim you are nice are the times you're least nice. Now, is this what God made? I don't know who it was, but it was it was one of either Chesterton or Mugridge or Lewis who said that as long as we live in this world of suffering, this veil of tears, there will always be humor. And the reason is that humor is the way that we mediate the tension between what we know we were made to be and what we actually are. All right. And he says it's also why we don't go around naked here. Because none of us could stand it. Okay, but then he says in heaven, there will be no need for humor or clothing. Isn't that beautiful? So you have to understand that you aren't what God made you to be. That we live in a fallen world. And if you think that becoming a Christian means that you put this behind you and you no longer live in a veil of tears, that you no longer live in the presence of death, that you no longer struggle with who you are and how you look. (laughs) All right, some of you do look pretty doggone good. But aside from that, most of us don't. All right. If you have this struggle in you, you should not think that this is because you haven't quite gotten your thoughts right yet. You aren't quite living in faith yet. Okay, this is what God wants you to be aware of. He wants you to be aware of in this world that you will have suffering. All right. Now, if you look at this, it takes it for granted the sufferings of this present age. Creation itself is in slavery to corruption. Verse 21. The whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Verse 22. We ourselves, verse 23, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope, verse 24, we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he already sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Now, That is the life that we live, okay? That is your life and that is my life. You weigh too much and when you try to stop eating ice cream, you go down in the middle of the night and you get some. And as you get it, you think, I'll take a little less this time. And then you're ending up like Winnie the Pooh, not able to get through the hole because you've put on weight. All right? That's our lives. That's not the lives of unbelievers. That's the life of Christians, All right. As Christians, we sin. We sin knowingly. We sin intentionally. It's not just something where the false the false teachers uh, say that uh, after a while, if if you get the second blessing, then all your sin is really a function of um, you not quite being on top of things intellectually, but your heart isn't wanting to sin. No, 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 no. My heart wants to sin. You say, well, you, you must not be a Christian. Yes, I am a Christian. My heart wants to sin. If you know why I'm saying this, go, or you don't know why, go back to the previous chapters in Romans and read them. All right? It's very clear that the reason we have suffering in this life is not just because of the bad pagans who have made abortion legal. <laughs> All right? It is because we as Christians are not perfect. We still live enslaved to sin. Now, you say, well, we're not slaves to sin anymore. I say, that's right. We're now slaves of the spirit. But the Bible says that there is a law of sin within us as Christians, a law. 
Now, that's no flighty, simple sort of uh, cream puff thing. A law of sin in us is a pretty heavy, intentional, consistent, driving force. All right? And this is what it means to become sanctified. Now, if we read on, this is our dilemma. And then here's the promise in verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, it doesn't make any sense to pray if you don't need anything, does it? If you don't need anything, why ask for anything? We need. We need money. We need food. We need shelter. We need children to love. We need husbands. We need truthfulness to be on our lips. We need our hearts to be humbled. We are very, very, very needy people. Right? I mean, not, you know, Joseph was talking about how the second half of that chapter of uh, Isaiah was a wonderful promise to us. And I'm sitting there thinking the first half of the chapter of Isaiah is a wonderful promise to me. Why? Because it diagnoses me right. You know, who wants a, 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 who wants a voice teacher that will tell you you sound good when you're flat? You know, who wants a Bible that tells us all the time that every day in every way of the world is getting better and better when we know our own hearts and we realize that like Paul, our experience is the older we get, the more we realize we are the chief of sinners. Remember, Paul said, I am. He didn't say I used to be the chief of sinners. He said, I am the chief of sinners. Okay. And so when the Bible speaks of our sin, it creates a meat cleaver effect. When the Bible diagnoses who we are and tells us about the nature of sin, we're all divided. Jesus didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. What is his sword? His sword is between the Pharisee who said, oh, God, I thank you that I'm not like him. And the publican who said, oh, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. This is the division that God gives us. And so if you're a believer, when the Bible diagnoses sin and shows hypocrisy and, 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 and lies and, and lusts and, and the law of sin and death that resides in us, you rejoice because you say, finally, someone's being honest with me. Do you, does this make sense to you? And then what? Then you turn to Christ and you say, Jesus is my solution. You don't have a hard heart, a stiff neck, denying that you're sinful, denying that you have needs. You say, that's me. And you say, Jesus is my righteousness. You don't say, well, I'm going to try extra hard next week to not be that way. You say, Jesus is my solution. Now, that is the process of coming from death to life, of putting your faith in Jesus Christ. That is what we Protestants refer to as justification by faith alone. All right. We don't go light candles and attend mass every day of the week and think that that is how we're saved. We go to the cross. We admit who we are in all its ugliness, in all its wickedness, and we cling to the blood of Christ. But then you have this issue of the ongoing Christian life that we've been describing, where we live in a veil of tears, we suffer, we continue to have a law of sin and death. And what this text tells us here, what? It says the Spirit also helps our weakness. Then it immediately goes and describes one specific way that the Spirit helps us in our weakness, and that's how? By prayer. It describes to us that even in how we speak to God, the Spirit does what we need to have done. 
It takes it for granted that we don't know how to pray. And it says, don't worry about it. The Holy Spirit will have you pray in a prayer that is appropriate for God. Now think about this. You would think that one of the things that Christians could clearly do properly is to approach God in prayer. There's so many models of prayer in Scripture. You can just open to Psalms and you can just read any Psalm and it's a perfect prayer. Jesus did that. But what the Bible's teaching us here is that our prayers are, are not even right. You know, we can't even get prayer right. But don't worry about it because the Holy Spirit takes our prayers and He intercedes for us in accordance with the will of the Father. Okay, what this means is that you don't want the will of God. Do you understand that? It makes no sense for us to give, be given a promise that the Holy Spirit will change our prayers so they're in conformity with the will of the Father unless we pray in a way that isn't in, will, in conformity with the will of the Father. Does that make sense to you? All right. So even as a Christian, when you pray, you're ignorant. I'm ignorant. I can't pray. But the Holy Spirit is going to take our prayers. Now, what should this cause you to be? This should cause you to be a very cheerful person. Not a flaky dude. You know, not a, not a Pollyanna. Ugh. You know, these people, I was saying to somebody yesterday that I get so tired of my Christian friends who every time you ask them how something's going, they'll tell you, oh, from glory to glory. And then one day, about every three months, they'll tell you, well, you know, the last three months were really hard, but now things are from glory to glory. And you never quite get the time with them when things aren't good. It's from glory to glory, and then, well, it was bad, but now it's glory to glory. You never hit them when things are bad. That's just not biblical Christianity. What do you think Jesus was doing in the Garden of Gethsemane? Telling the disciples, oh, don't worry, things are from glory. Oh, Father, if you can take this, don't worry, everything's fine. You know, it's so dishonest. Christians should be honest, all right? Things are hard, but we're cheerful because the Holy Spirit dwells in us and the Holy Spirit does the work. In other words, in other words it's not that God does the work of giving us faith, because we all know that we're saved by faith alone. By grace alone, through faith, we all know that it, faith is a gift, right? And then it's up to us now. And it's not that after we're saved, everything is from glory to glory, and that God makes everything better, and that if we have faith, we won't be sick, and we won't disart like our wives. No. It's that we live in the confidence that the Holy Spirit is at work within us. And because the Holy Spirit is work within us, we don't think that it's righteous to go around with sad sack faces, acting as if everything's a burden and there is no joy to this life. It's bunk. What could be more joyful than someone that can live in the knowledge that, yes, the leaves do stink, but heaven is coming and day by day I'm being conformed to the image of God. And you know how you know you're being conformed to the image of God? The same way you know that a dentist is doing good work. It stinks, there's a drill going, and sometimes there's a sharp pang of pain. And you're happy. 
Because you know that your toothache or whatever it was that bothered you is going to be gone. This is a good analogy for what it is to be a Christian. The drill's going. There's like a smell of something burning. There's some pangs of pain, right? And you know you're going to leave that place with a tooth that will chew. Okay? So, we're going to, if the elders could come forward, please. We're going to go to the Lord's table.